Hi there, listener. It's Matthew. You've come looking for an episode of the Children's Book Podcast, and you've found it. Hooray! But you're probably wondering why the name of the podcast has changed. After eight years of doing the Children's Book Podcast, I began a new career as head of podcasts at A Kid's Company About, where I now oversee a podcast network dedicated to producing original content that talks up to kids, centers the things going on in their world, and engages and challenges how they see the world and themselves. All of the episodes of the Children's Book Podcast are still here, but now, if you're subscribed, you'll get new episodes of Worth Noting, a kid's podcast about current events, hosted by me. Something for you and the young people in your life to enjoy together. Enjoy this episode, and I hope you'll check out Worth Noting and other podcasts from a kid's company about... Support for the Children's Book Podcast comes from the Complete Picture Book Submission System. You have one chance to make an impression with an agent or editor with your picture book submission. The Complete Picture Book Submissions System will help ensure yours stands out above the rest. Created by New York Times bestselling author Emma Walton Hamilton and 12 by 12 Picture Book Challenge founder Julie Headland. The Complete Picture Book Submissions System provides an easy-to-follow, step-by-step, foolproof process for every aspect of crafting submissions. No more fear. No more guesswork. No more reinventing the wheel each time you submit a new manuscript. To get their seven-step submission checklist, visit picturebooksubmissions.com today. That's picturebooksubmissions.com. Welcome, everyone. Uh, I assume you know who this individual is sitting to my left. I can be a complete stranger to you, but I appreciate you inviting me along for this ride. My name is Matthew Winner. I'm the host of the Children's Book Podcast. I'm also an elementary school librarian outside of Baltimore, Maryland. And this, folks, is Scott Simon. Everyone say hi, Scott. Hi there. Recorded live at ALA Midwinter 2020, this is the Children's Book Podcast, episode number 576. I'm your host, Matthew Winner. Today I'm joined by Scott Simon, who you may well know from his work on public radio. Scott's middle grade debut is called Sunnyside Plaza, and it's about a group home for developmentally disabled adults. The story is loosely based on Scott's own childhood experiences, and I think it says a lot about who we see and who we make invisible in our society. We recorded this conversation in front of a packed audience in a very, very noisy exhibit hall, but I think our voices come through clearly above the din of the giant room. And it's a good conversation about a seldom discussed representation in children's literature. Please welcome my guest, Scott Simon, author of Sunnyside Plaza, So, so first, how are you? I'm fine, thanks. How are you? Wonderful. I'm doing great. Thanks for asking. I, Scott, would love to ask you to introduce Sunnyside Plaza to those who haven't had a chance to read it yet. And then I have a lot of questions for you. Sure. Well, Sunnyside Plaza is the name of, uh, of a home on the north side of Chicago. 
uh, which is a residence for developmentally disabled adults. It resembles in most ways a home I worked at when I was about 19. And it was a transformative experience in my life. As I think a lot of you know, I've had a very rich repertorial career where I've covered events around the world and looked history in the face and interviewed a lot of famous people and interviewed a lot of self-important people. But I am telling you, the time that I spent working at this home for developmentally disabled adults was transformative. It was as important in more important, really, in many ways, in the way I see the world than the repertorial experiences that I've had. Uh, when I was being shown, and I, and I didn't, I wasn't working there, I, I should come clean, because I had any larger vocational interest that I thought that this was something I wanted to do for my life. It was a, it was a convenient job. Uh, I was a case aide, I helped people get ready for bed, uh, and after, after they had been, uh, put to bed, it left plenty of time for me to do homework, for me to watch television, for me to call friends on the phone. The Cub games were off and on when they were on the West Coast late at night, so I could, I could watch those. But I learned so much there, and it has stayed with me a very long time. First day I was being shown around uh, by the woman who was the administrator of the home. She took me by a table where there were a group of adults who were painting and coloring. And they were finger painting and they were drawing pictures of dogs and cats with crayons. And I, and I think you'll appreciate that when you see paintings like that, artwork like that, that's produced by a five or six year old, it's very natural for an adult to say something like, oh, another Picasso, oh, another Monet. I can, I can see you're gonna be like Toulouse Lautrec. I'm afraid when I saw that done by 50 and 60 year old men and women, I, 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 I did not have that reaction at all. In fact, my heart was filled with wool. Uh, and, and really, very unhelpfully, uh, with pity. But you know, within two or three days, I was over that. And the more time I spent there, the more I became over that. But even just within two or three days, I began to understand that the people who lived in this residence had full, challenging, engaging, enlivening lives. They were good for each other. They were kind to each other. They looked out for each other. They looked past the things that we often use as, as, as signatures and tokens of identity that divide us from each other. None of that stuff mattered to them. Um, I grew to admire them so much, their character, their humor. It took me a couple of days to realize when they said something that was funny, it was okay for me to laugh. They said it to be funny. Um, I really found myself caught up in admiration for the people who lived there. And I, I'm, my family is a little bit more religious in background than what you sometimes encounter in journalism. Uh, and I, I really felt that, if I might put it this way, God had put me there for a reason, to, to be able to meet people like this. Now, you know, there's not always a one-for-one -one relationship in things that you do in life. Uh, 
I'm certain that working there made me even more interested in being a writer and being a journalist and finding stories and finding unexpected and surprising stories. But really all of my adult life I had been looking for some, the right way to be able to tell a story that would operate, that would have characters that were like the ones I knew and would be set in a residence like this. And that's where the experience of having children comes in. Uh, I have read a lot of books with our children who are now 16 and 13. I began to understand in a way I think I didn't really appreciate when I was actually young that the books young people read and what you read when you're the age of a middle grader are the books that stay with you for the rest of your lives. Um, I mean with respect for any of the authors I've interviewed who might even be here, uh, I, I typically interview two or three authors a week and I am sometimes hard pressed to remember the details of their books, not because they're bad, but just, you know, there's a lot on the shelf. We don't remember everything, but the books that I read as a young reader and the books certainly our daughters have read as young readers stay with them. And I felt if I could tell a story, this story about the characters that I so really deeply wanted to present to people, if I could tell it for this age of readers, it, it might really be accomplishing something. I also, and I don't, I'm probably wrapping all this up together, and forgive me, but it was very important to me to try and tell the story in the voice of somebody who lived in the residence. Uh, I didn't want to. I didn't want to present a character coming in from the outside who would resolve everything for everyone, or even who would explain everything for everyone. I wanted, insofar as I can, to have a narrator, and the narrator in my book is a 19-year-old woman, developmentally disabled, named Sally Miyake. I wanted. I wanted the narrative voice to be the voice of somebody who lived in the home. I wanted the people who lived in the home as we say now, to have agency, to have control of their, of their own story and their own lives as they were presented to, to young readers in particular. Now I knew as I was writing the story that that's not the usual, not the usual form you have in, um, in literature for young people. And yet, please understand, I thought there was just something fundamentally wrong about creating some kind of adolescent savior character. Who would, who would come in from the outside and, 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 in a sense, take over somebody's story. That's why I wanted to work on the narrative voice, and thank God Alvina Ling understood that. I also had the advantage of expert advice. Uh, our 16-year-old, who was then 15, Elise, and her best friend, Adelaide, both working on their high school newspaper and both avid readers. Uh, and also there were people, dear friends of ours, who run, some of you might be familiar with the LARCH program, which is a Jesuit-run um, program of homes for developmentally disabled adults that are really across the country now. Uh, good friends of ours run one of them in, in Northwest Washington, D.C., and we were able to spend even a little more time over there, and they also read the manuscript. Uh, I wanted to keep that narrative voice because I thought it was important. And at the same time, I wanted to tell the story. And I thought this was as close as I'd, as I'd come in my writing life to be able to put something together to tell the story. So, 
I also did an alternative three or four chapters that I sent to Elvina, where I changed the narrative voice to that of a 12-year-old girl. And I hope you read the book, but she is the, she is the daughter, Maria is her name, of a, um, of a Chicago police officer who comes into the home. She sees the home, she becomes swept up in it, she begins to know some of the people there. I tried some chapters in her voice, and I've sent them to Elvina, and I also sent them to our daughter and her friend. And they let me twist for two or three days and didn't tell me exactly what they think. And I'll never forget, I'm in my office downtown, and in the middle of the day, I get an email from Elise and Adelaide saying, well, the, the new chapters are good, but they're not as interesting as when Sally tells the story. And I said to myself, that's all I've got to hear. It's interesting. We're going for interesting. Interesting uh, puts wings on a story. Interesting means that people might read it and take something from it. I also, I'll try not to get weeping. It was another time in my life. That didn't work out so well, did it? It was another time in my life I realized, as I think a lot of you people here know, children give you courage. Children give you courage to, to do what you know is right. Children help you understand not to look for ways out, but to look for ways to do the right thing. And when Elise and Adelaide said that, I thought, this is the way I've got to tell the story. And thankfully, this great publisher, Alvina Lynn, agreed. Sorry. That was wonderful. Thank yeah. you. I, um, if you don't mind, I'd love to share my experience as a reader yeah, reading this book. Because as, a, as an individual that reads a lot of books, um, I was initially skeptical of the story being told in Sally's voice. We're not... It's not immediately clear to the reader what's going on, especially to those readers that don't have a background in what it might mean to be in a group home, to be cared for that way, to have uh, individuals in the story saying, oh yeah, my family's going to come visit me soon, or they're, they're... To have them speak truths that are only true to them, that the people running the home go, no, they're, they might never see their family yeah. again. Um, and to start seeing my students in that, and then to have people in this home start dying and realize that you're bringing us into somewhat of a murder mystery in yeah. such a way and having these children and, and, and those, those that congregate around this home trying to figure out what's going on. And I felt, Scott, as you carried us through the story that you, you model the way that adults can see children and also the way that children can have agency to communicate their truths to us. And um, I, I loved immediately how Sally counted everything. You'll immediately fall into Sally knowing that to get from the exhibit hall entrance to here is something like yeah. 24 times seven steps plus six. Exactly. Right? Yeah. See those things in eights, yes. Yeah, these, these, these habits to see Sally um, demonstrate but also to say I don't know what that word means I need you to help me with that um, and to have them be stuck in this setting that we're in this one setting where these deaths are happening and to feel like what if this happens to one of them and why can't we get out of this home why can't we get out of this space um, but to show that world that's outside I felt like 
in staying with you through that story, I really saw your heart on the page. I saw the way that you cared for Sally and the way that you cared for her voice and for getting it right. And so I, I really appreciate hearing that story of trying it in other voices, but ultimately knowing that Sally's voice was the one that would guide you through this story. Knowing that it took you having children around this age, 15, um, to feel like the time was right to tell this story of when you were in those, the, the formative uh, years. I wonder, I, I wonder about the care you took to provide enough detail and enough context to let a reader who does not have these experiences in and to see that window, but to understand with a lot of that understanding, you walked away from your fourth or fifth day working at that location. I wonder what that was like for you to leave space for the reader to, to understand and to wrestle. Well, I, yeah, I found this very valuable. Uh, I, don't, I don't know, do you ever really enjoy writing a book? I'm not sure. You enjoy it when it's over. But I, I, <laughs> I, I found it very valuable because it was... Look, I mean, there are a lot of people who don't like my writing style. There are some people who do. Uh, but at this point, I know my writing style pretty well. Uh, that was not Sally's voice. I couldn't write the story in Sally's voice. It's not me. Um, and so what I found very valuable and very rewarding was to, was to try and see the world through her eyes. And I think using a different voice and using a different narrative approach, using a different way to see the world, a different vocabulary, um, it winds, you wind up being able to see that character, I think, more validly at the same time, too, because you're, you're tearing yourself down and trying to fill the spaces up with the character. Uh, Sally is inspired, modeled on two or three people who I knew. Uh, living at the approved home on West Wilson Avenue in Chicago, and but also as these things come to be, also probably in, you know, inspired by bits and pieces of people that I've just known in other circumstances and other, other contexts over the years. But it really underscored for me the value in, in using a different vocabulary, and it also renewed in me an appreciation for the ways in which adults who live with some kind of developmental disability, the, the knowledge, the sophistication, the audacity it takes for them to be able to maneuver the world and get around the world, and to understand it in their own terms and to be a, and to be a part, a, a successful part of living their lives in, the, in that world. Uh, Using that different style and different perspective renewed my appreciation all over again for the courage it took a lot of people who live in a home like that to be able to put one foot after another in a given day. Uh, and also, it helped me understand all over again the utter selflessness with which they looked out for each other. And that's something that I wanted to capture. There are two detectives that enter this story. One with the brilliant name of London Bridges that you just make fun of 
irreverently throughout the entire book. That's really your name. Your your real name is London Bridges. Yes, they call they he, they call him Lon, but his yes, his name is London Bridges. Yes. And <laughs> I love that you have these detectives to help us, the readers, try to poke holes in what's going on here and who can be trusted. And are you really offering the best care for the people that are living at this home? Are you taking advantage of them? Who? How do we as adults model value for all individuals, right? Yeah. From uh, running a place for them to live their lives, and are you taking advantage of them or, or not, to, mm -hmm. to making money off of yeah. how you provide care for them? Um, I don't want to get, clearly you can tell, I'm a school librarian, I'm desperately trying not to give away things to you, but um, to say that there had to be someone in this story that was taking advantage of these children or of these residents and to give to give your characters the drive to explore the unknown to explore in their neighborhood and to go out and try to get to meeting the detectives in the station where they are to try to speak the truth that they know in the language that they know how to do it I found very powerful especially to bring them into a bar Yes, I have, I have a scene in a bar. I guess that probably violates another another middle grade nostrum, doesn't it? Come right. to think of when it, they're I offered think, beer. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, they're offered beer. Yeah, yeah. quite sincerely offered beer. Yeah. you know, like oh yeah, you know. And then and then when uh, when Darnell says he doesn't, one of the characters says he doesn't want a beer. The bartender says, "Oh yeah, I know you're a top shelf guy." Right. You know, <laughs> uh, not beer. Uh, well, it, it was. And it was important for me to, 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 I think, show two kinds of people, more than two kinds of people, but I mean in the, in the outside world, if yeah. I might put it this way. Because uh, a lot of the characters that they run into in the book, and I'm thinking of London Bridges and Esther Rivas, uh, who are the two uh, police detectives, uh, and people they run into, the, they just don't go to a bar. They also run into the, the a religious mission yeah. and, a, oh. and a restaurant afterwards. The best people uh, don't exactly know who they're meeting, but they respond to them. They, 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 their hearts are open because the people they meet are so open. And, and they find themselves drawn in. And as London Detective Bridges says at one point, as Lon says, you know, you, sometimes people are put in front of you because you're not supposed to walk past them. Yeah which is very definitely how, uh, how I felt. Uh, there are people in the book who they, they meet, uh, often workmen who come into the home who say something unkind, unkind uh, or harsh or just clueless. And, and to try and give those characters their due, they probably don't know the hurt they're causing. Um, and they're just they're just talking and they don't know how it's received and that happens in life too and then i have a, a character who is yes without giving anything away who has figured out a way to make money off of them but i mean this is this is a character who has discounted their lives but and doesn't think says, they notice i'm trying to provide for my family I'm trying to and yes he's you not still see the human in it despite it he says i'm just trying i'm just trying to provide for my family hey you know it's uh, it's tough out there well i won't go into that no, no, no. that'll give too much of it away one of my favorite characters is conrad who is the cook in the home 
who, who was, I, I will say, an, uh, drawn from an actual cook who was in the home where I worked. There were actually two cooks there, and one of them, it was just a job. The other, uh, who inspired Conrad, was a very religious man, and, and that's not why he was there, it was just a job to him. But then confronted, and meeting and getting to know the people there and working with them, because some of the residents, like Sal Gal, actually work in the kitchen, he felt that he was given something, something important to do in life. And that was to not just meet these people, but to be kind, to open his heart, to become a part of their lives. And it was important to me to show that this is just, this isn't something you just leave to professionals. You know, people who are employed in the home or in that business. It's the responsibility for all of us to be kind and to open our hearts and to, and to get to know different kinds of people and to make room in our lives for different kinds of people and make them a part of our lives. This is a novel that works really well for not only children to read, but for adults to read with their children, right? Uh, for us to reflect on how we have m maybe been raised. I mean, I, I'm just going to out that I was a... Uh, I was always the kid that when I, when I saw someone that looked or seemed or acted differently from me, I was always told, look away, don't ask questions, yeah, yeah, don't yeah. whatever. There was and I have some of that. I recognize yeah. sort of a bit of shame yeah. tied into it. And that's something I've worked to dismantle as, as someone who works with children. Um, but I wonder, as someone who primarily works and does things with adults, um, if, if you've had the opportunity to interact more with school children and, and to be sharing this story and, and oh. having them give well, their I've, light back to you. I've just begun to visit schools and I was telling Alvina, I love it. I, 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 I think it's great. I, I, I love it. It's, it's, forgive me, much more fun for a book tour with a lot of adults. Um, I've, I've visited a few schools. I'll be visiting more in the week ahead. The readers are just wonderful. You get great questions. My favorite being, what size shoe do you wear? Oh, you don't get, can I go to the bathroom? Uh, Our visiting authors get that. No, but I'll look forward okay. to that. Uh, and I told this young man who, who asked the question, this was, I think, at the John Eaton uh, Middle School in Washington, D.C., uh, I said, you know, the next time I interview an important government official, I'm going to make sure that's the best question. I'm going to ask him or her that. <laughs> Alas, that opportunity came just this Saturday. And given everything that's happening, I did have a White House official on the air. And I didn't think it would strike the right note to ask what kind of shoe do you wear. So, Sorry to hear that. Yeah, I know. I, back, I backed out on that. But I just love it. And, they, and, the, and, and some of the children who have read the book actually draw art and posters about scenes that are in the book. I have a scene set in a Chinese restaurant called Peking Dukes. I love that name. And uh, I, I have a, a scene where the people there open their fortune cookies, open their, uh, mm -hmm. their fortunes. And they had taken, some of these youngsters had taken the fortune cookie slogans and put them in cookies and had, uh, you know, had turned that into a piece of art. Uh, I've had several children have done their own alternative cover based on, I think, the beautiful one we have. <laughs> They're designing the paperback. Closet. They're ready for that. <laughs> I just, you know, I just think it's great. And, uh, you know, it's, it's great to talk to them, to young readers. And you can see it when they've read the book. The story is 
you know, fresh within them and they want to know actual things. I just think it's great. Well, and you brought up earlier, too, that this is an age with children where we read about many of us in this room, I'm sure, have books that we remember reading as yeah. a child that we just they've become ingrained in our lives. Yes. I have a wrinkle in time, Madeline Langle oh, is just course, yes. with me. I just carry her with me to everything. Um, so to know when you write a book for children that I feel like that's the greatest pressure you put on yourself is getting it right because for for the for the right child it will be their forever book. I think you're absolutely right and it's one of the reasons I wanted to do the book. Um, Yes, it's one of the reasons I wanted to do the book, and it's one of the reasons why, one of the reasons why I wanted it to be this story, because I, I really, you know, I I don't want to use a, I'm not trying to teach anybody anything. I don't I, I don't think it helps a book to say, oh, you can learn something from this, because look, first and last, as my daughter said, I hope it's interesting. I hope it makes you want to turn the page. I hope you know. I hope readers young readers want to find out what's happening, what's going on uh, in this home. But I do think between the lines and after you turn over the last page, you can be left with a feeling and an impression and, and your life has been changed one way or another. Did your children have the opportunity to read drafts and give you feedback? They would have been... Uh, our, 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 our then 15-year-old did that, yes. Our 13-year-old is reading the book now. And uh, she said she didn't want to, you know, a little sibling rivalry going on there. And I, she didn't want to read the book until now. So I'm, I'm I mean, I'm checking like all the time to find out. <laughs> Her status updates, reading it, Exactly, right what, you know, what she thinks. And <laughs> I did notice the first thing she did. Well, I, I of course, the, uh, I have, the dedication of the book is to Cecil and David Rosenthal. And some of you might... Um, some of you might remember their names. They were the they were the brothers, developmentally disabled adults, who um, were actually ushers in the Tree of Life synagogue in Pittsburgh, who died unfortunately in that in that crime. And this happened around the time I was finishing the book, and it just I was so moved to read the accounts of how much they meant to that congregation and that community. I um, I, I wanted to dedicate the book to uh, to them. But our daughters know at this point to look for the acknowledgments. <laughs> so they look for their names in the acknowledgments. That's something that's something that they do. And, and, and my, my wife's name, of course, and Alvina, my agent, all the people who are important in my life, uh, and the people who, who are readers. But I, I think to have Elise and her best friend Adelaide read the book, I don't mind saying it was very frightening because you know, they they have no interest in being nice to me. Uh, I mean, I, 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 I think Elise and I are, are pretty close, but she doesn't cut me any slack, to say the least. Are you ever like, but I was so nice to all the things that you wrote that I read growing up. You know, I should have, I should have, I should have <laughs> said that. Well, I made such a fuss over what you wrote. Can't you even? <laughs> but, you know, but that also wasn't the kind of reaction I was looking for. I did, I did want her to tell me exactly what her reactions were, and uh, and she did. Elise and Adelaide, by the way, noticed that I had given inadvertently given the same name to two different characters. Now, I mean, we know that happens in life, right? There's probably another Matthew and another Scott sitting somewhere in here, right? There you go. But in a book, it is just heedlessly yeah. confusing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I hadn't noticed that. They had noticed that. There can so. only be one Sally in this town. 
only one. Yes, right, exactly. <laughs> so in any event, they're very, very valuable that way too. Well, it sounds like the experience was was fun for you, albeit challenging, as writing yeah. should be. I wonder if you, um, if you're, if you feel compelled to write more for young readers. I might. I'll, I'll, I'll see. I and might. And Sally might also have more to, yeah, to yeah, share. Yeah, no, I, I might. I mean, you know, the reaction to this book has been just terrific. So, uh, in fact, I might. I don't know. I don't want to say. I've, I've, um, I've finished a play, which is uh, not for youngsters. It's, uh, it's uh, although it's set among a group of clowns, and uh, the it's a play that's often, it's about alcoholism and substance abuse, but set among a group of clowns. And in fact, tonight I'm going to, where it's being workshopped at a, at a theater in the Midwest. So I'm going to see the, I mean, call it production, but it's being workshopped. But you were about uh, to tell me, a bunch of librarians are going to have wine and perform my play. <laughs> what a great idea. What a fun way of reader's theater. You know, yeah. now, that I've, now that I've met so many librarians, <laughs> I know what a fun group of people you are. Actually... I had always known that. You know, my, my stepfather, my late stepfather, was, uh, was actually chairman of the Chicago Public Library. Yeah. His name was Ralph Newman. And so I, I, I can't tell you how important libraries have been in my life. Um, I, I, the Chicago Public Library, I don't know if anybody is here who's from the Chicago Public Library, but I practically, I practically grew up there because I would, I, would, I would leave school and I would take the L downtown. Uh, in, in, in Chicago, and I would meet my mother in her, she was worked as a secretary at an advertising agency, and she would give me a few dollars, and I would go to the Chicago Public Library. Firstly, I would, of course, stop for a hamburger at the Illinois Central Station, and I would go into the library, and I would, yes, I would do my homework, but boy, I would wander. And I thought it was just great. And, and then when I, when I became like the middle grade level, I noticed they didn't care if I left the Thomas Hughes room, which is where children are supposed to go. And I began to wander over to where they had books for adults and reference volumes. And in those days they had, maybe they still do, microfilm of old newspapers, which I think solidified my interest in journalism. I thought this was wonderful. And I, I never got a disdainful reply from a librarian. I mean, I, every librarian was so important to me. You could ask them anything, and they might laugh occasionally, but they'd say, let's find out. Let me take a look. Let me get this for you over here. You know, and this is when, I, you know, I, I, I would have to stand, or I couldn't reach the book. They would have to do that for me. Just librarians were so important to me, and then my mother, would, would come off work and she would meet me there uh, in the library as agreed upon and we would often spend just another couple of hours there. So uh, the library and um, we, we actually until recently lived over a neighborhood library in Washington DC but they moved out darn they moved uh, they built a new they built new quarters but we lived over the library so our daughters would do their homework there and they would my wife is French so their French tutor would come and and meet them there in the library, and uh, I would often meet them there in the library. They've just been so important, and I, I think everything I've seen around the country, and I'm, and I'm still a little bit connected with the Chicago Public Library, inevitably helping them in special events and functions, I just think libraries have made so many 
incredibly smart and clever and informed decisions about how to keep pace with the world and how to how to open their doors and 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 open the wealth of human knowledge to new generations that I I, I just wish other avenues in American life would do. I just think libraries have been uh, very much in advance of that, and it's and it's terrific. Uh, and, and you know, there's there are still gathering places for so many people. Yeah, and the more that folks give attribute to good libraries, the more individuals realize there's a home there. There's always yeah. a home there. So I appreciate you saying that. And I appreciate that your book gets to find home in public and school libraries and, and the children can find a home in yours. Thank you for that. I um, want to give all of you an opportunity to ask uh, Scott questions, but I actually end my podcast interviews by always asking this question, which you all are welcome to bring back to your children. I always ask that tomorrow I'll see a library full of children, as many of us will. Is there a message that I can bring to them from you? To the children, to the, the children, library. to your readers. Um, read whatever you want. There it is. There it is. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, I tell that to her, you know, take it off the shelf, take a look at it. If you don't like it, put it back on the shelf. Uh, open your mind. The Children's Book Podcast is recorded and produced by me, Matthew Winner, in my library studio in Ellicott City, Maryland. You can subscribe to the podcast and access the archive of over 550 episodes at matthewcwinner.com slash podcast. Our theme music is by Poddington Bear, care of the Free Music Archive. All views and opinions expressed on the show are those of the individuals and do not reflect the ideas or viewpoints of the publishers of the books referenced. Want to help out the show? Writing a review on iTunes or sharing the podcast with friends through Facebook, Twitter, word of mouth, or any other means helps reach more listeners, which leads to more content and more amazing guests. And that's a very good thing indeed. We know you value what you put in front of your kids, especially when it comes to screens and podcasts. That's why we're excited to share a new podcast from our friends at Sleepiest, creating bedtime stories to help your kids fall asleep fast. Hello, Abby here. If you've got children and find bedtimes a struggle, I'd like to tell you about Coco Sleep, a children's story podcast designed to make bedtime a dream. Coco Sleep turns a chaotic bedtime into cosy bonding time. The stories are delivered in a pace that gently slows. Rumour has it that no one's ever heard an ending. So search Coco Sleep on your favourite podcast app and let's make bedtime a dream. That's K-O-K-O Sleep and I'll see you there.